since this is kind of an anniversary Sunday for me and the fact that I've got a birthday, you know, I uh, thought it would be a good, good Sunday to, to, re, to review some things God's done in our lives. One is the, the trials that come to us. Pain invades our lives uninvited. You know, when you see pain coming, you say, no, 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 you're not welcome here. None of us want pain. And yet, if we stop to think about it, we're all experiencing it from time to time, and we can't keep it from happening. As I just look out Sunday after Sunday in this room, I many times am overwhelmed with the responsibility to pastor and love people in pain. There are those among us that uh, are born with deformities of some sort that they will suffer with. We have those who have cancer, those who have a stroke, those who have Parkinson's, those who have bipolar disorders, those who are autistic or Down syndrome, those who have experienced unemployment, loss of income, loss of a spouse, who are lonely and can't get on with life without a spouse, those who are going through divorce and the agony of that, those who are looking for uh, new ventures that are causing such stress and pain. It just goes on and on and on. Pain invades our lives uninvited. How do we deal with the pain? How do we respond to the pain? Look with me at Psalm 66 as we think about pain itself. Uh, you know, and, and don't buy into the, the, the notion that if I just live a good life, if I'm just more godly, I will escape pain. It's not going to happen. 2 Timothy 3, 12 reminds us all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you say, well, I'm going to live godly and escape this thing, no, it's not going to happen. Even the most godly, the good, experience great pain. Let me read Psalm 66, the first 12 verses. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works because of the greatness of your power. Your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. The psalmist is starting out with just his declaration. God, you're awesome. You're everything. You're sovereign. Even the non-Christians have to respect that at some level. Verse 5, come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch over on the nations, and let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you've tried us, O God. You've refined us as silver. Wait a minute, did you notice it just switched gears? God's awesome, God's awesome. God's keeping us, God's loving us, God's blessing us, God's great. God tries us, verse 10. You've tried us, O God. You've refined us as silver is refined. You've brought us into the net. You've laid an oppressive burden upon, upon our, our loins. You've made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, and I circle that word, it's so cool. Yet, you brought us into a place of abundance. Don't catch the... Don't miss the, the switching of gears there. 
We love to come in and say, God is glorious and awesome, and I want to bless and praise his name. And then the psalmist says, and he's also the God who takes me through fire and through water and lets accidents happen over my head and upon me until I'm crushed and my enemies seem to have the day. God does all of those things too. Yet, in the midst of that, he brings us out. Sometimes we forget that we have trials that are divinely designed. Please, if, if you don't get anything else I say this morning, maybe you should catch this. My prayer for you is that you will not be squeezed into this world's mold that's so popular in America right now, and that is that somebody, somehow, some event has messed up my life, and because they've messed up my life, I want to shoot and sue somebody. Don't get squeezed into that mold. Nobody, nowhere, no event has messed up your life. You may be going through in a difficult time. You may have tremendous trials. If you want to blame somebody, blame God. God can take it. You were a mess before the events. We are already messed up. And messed up people go through messed up stuff by divine design. And when we get that, when we get it, God is awesome and sovereign, and he also takes us through the fire and the trials, then we'll start asking God, why? Why do messed up things happen to messed up people? That's the way the book ought to read. And who has the answers it's God. Reminds me of a, of a song I heard years ago by James Ward. And, and, and his song was called, Make Me a Vessel. And these are what I can remember of it. It says, when I get too uncomfortable, I do what I feel. I do what I like. When I get so, uncom when I get so comfortable, I do as I please. God looks from heaven... And he doesn't like what he sees. So he takes me through the fire, whiter than snow. And he takes me through the water, I'm sure to go. To make me a vessel till I overflow. Many times we forget that perspective that our God is divinely designed fire and water and trials taking us through them to make us something he can't make us into without them. He has designed a lot of mess for us on earth. We've bought this, this worldly idea that we're here and everything's supposed to be good and happy and anything outside of that, somebody's messed it up and I need to, to, to take out vengeance on them as a result. And that's not God's way. It's not God's design. So again, you can think through Psalm 66 and you, you begin to get a better picture. And if you get that picture, you'll begin to ask questions like, why? We began as a family really asking that question in October of 1989. Um, I had my three-year-old son with me. We had just bought a used pop-up camper. And we hadn't used it yet. One of you know, it's kind of dirty and grungy, you know, uh, been sitting in somebody's backyard for decades. We got it cheap. Uh, probably, I, I can't remember, maybe about 500 bucks, you know? So you, you don't expect much for 500 bucks, right? And I'm out there trying to clean it up. <clears throat> it was October, so about this time of year, cool. You got on a little jacket out there. My three-year-old says, Daddy, can I help? Sure, come on out, let's help. Cleaned out the regulator, had a little gas tank on the front, a little regulator, I feel, you know, blew it out, said it's probably just dusty and dirty, and that's why it's not working. So I cleaned that out, turned on the gas, went into the pop-up camper <clears throat> to light the stove. That also had a little, so if, 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 if you go in the door and you're looking right at the stove, then there's a sink, turns the counter, there's a little heater there, and you're out the 
front with the gas. So the gas line comes in, makes a right turn around the heater, goes to the corner, turns again, comes to the stove. This is where I'm lighting it, trying to get gas here. Didn't dawn on me that there might be a leak somewhere. I assumed if I got gas here that everything's good. But as the line came into the camper and made that right-hand turn, there was a crack in the gas line on the other side where you couldn't see. So even though gas gets to the stove, all of this counter space down here, or cabinet space under the counter, is filling up with propane gas. And I light the gas stove up here, and it finally lights. I turn around to my son and say, that's cool, isn't it? And about that time, <laughs> all of that other gas caught up with that gas and surrounded us in an explosion that r would ring in our ears for days like a bomb just went off and flames all around us so I just immediately grabbed my son dove out the camper door onto the ground rolling drop and roll I remember we're rolling on the ground to put out the fire and I scooped him up after I got fire off of him and me and started heading to the house. I noticed as I looked down, skin on my fingers just rolled off, rolled back. Patty had heard the bomb, and she's running towards me. We meet halfway. I give Andy to, to her and said, call Maurice Lopez. I said, he's an hour away. Somebody's got to take us to the, doc, to the hospital. I said, I'm she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going back to put out the fire. I said, we don't want to burn down the neighborhood in our house. And so, because all the leaves where we had jumped um, were on fire now. <clears throat> so I'm going back. She's calling Maurice. By the time I get the fire out on the leaves, I get back in the house, and there's Maurice pulling in the front, takes us to the hospital. We get to the hospital, and they immediately uh, diagnosed us here in Anderson with thir third-degree burns on Andy's face and shoulders, his ears, his hands. You know, if it was covered good with clothes, you were somewhat protected. My hands weren't covered. Those parts of his body weren't covered. And they said, we need to rush you on down to the Augusta Burn Center. And I asked the question, why do we need to go to the Augusta Burn Center tonight? And they said, because you're looking at, for Andy at least, you're looking at a minimum of seven reconstructive surgeries to restore his skin, his, and they'll be there, and they'll keep him in the burn center and uh, set up these surgeries for you to redo the grafts. I said, well, what are they going to do tonight? They said, they can't do anything for a week. I said, they can't do anything for a week? He says, no, burn has to mature. First degree burn gets the first layer of skin. Second degree burn gets the next layer of skin. The third degree is burning into the tissue, and that just has to, to blister up and mature and swell, and it's not until all of that goes down that you can start doing surgery. And so we said, well, if you're going to just watch us for a week, we want to stay in Anderson because we want to stay near our church where people pray and people can love us because we need help. And they agreed, said, okay, we'll let you stay here. It's not our routine. It's not something we normally do. Um, they put us in a room at uh, AnMed, a corner room. I later realized um, why, I think, because uh, we had to scrape the skin off uh, several times a day, uh, letting this wound mature. And scraping that scream off, uh, that uh, skin off, you could, you just, you would scream. And you could hear I mean, if you were out, Patty and I taking turns as we could or whatever, you could hear the screams in the parking lot of Anmet. And then I began to realize, this is why they don't want us here. This is tough. Andy's head sw swole up to the size of his shoulders. Now, obviously, he was not my big, his big as me. He's a three-year-old. But just that's the kind of wound we were dealing with. And his fingers were all swollen, his ears... Um, one nurse came into the hospital room 
just immediately turned and went back out and threw up in the hall. It's that kind of ugly that it's difficult to deal with. And in that situation, you ask, why? God, he, he was not doing anything wrong. He just wanted to be with his dad. Why do you go through that kind of agony? And asking that question, you know, sent me first to the book of Job, where I found five reasons why God may do these kind of things. And then I began reading through the Bible. As I read through, came up with seven more. And I'm going to give you, if you can hang with me this morning, maybe a 13th. How about that? You get extra credit for showing up this morning. And 13 reasons why God may take you through the fire and through the water. We have a God who's revealed his will to us and begins to answer this question. Yes, I'm in charge. Yes, I'm sovereign. Yes, I have purpose and reason for you. Let me share it with you. So God gives us reasons. We all go through trials. It's good for us to ask why and let God speak to us. So let me run through 12 reasons as fast as I can and then give you some application and I'll finish the story uh, on the fire as well. First of all, what are some of the reasons why that may have happened to us? Why are you going through what you're going through? Number one, for advancing the gospel. Look at Philippians 1, 12 through 20. Philippians 1, verse 12. The Apostle Paul, speaking about himself, he is in prison and he says, And now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Paul's basically saying, I'm in prison. But when you put the most famous preacher in the New Testament in prison, that causes a stir. As a result of that, the gospel's going everywhere. Unbelievable. The, more people are hearing about Jesus since they put me in prison than were hearing about Jesus when I was out preaching. So Paul said, this is a good thing. One of the reasons I'm here is so many more people are preaching. Some aren't doing too good of a job. Some aren't doing it for the right reasons. But nevertheless, it's happening. Paul was convinced one of the reasons he was going through the trials of prison was because God wanted to give the word of God out to people. And he could get the word out to people just through that trial. Many people have heard about Jesus through me, through pain, that they would have never heard had the pain not been real. And the second reason, for correcting God's children. Sometimes we need correction and God wants to do that. Uh, look at Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. <coughs> Excuse me, I don't know any way to cut that off when I do that. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And what, you, what I want you to see here is that our God is not a God who is slack at being a father. Proverbs 3, and fathers need to be correcting their children. Proverbs 3, verse 11 says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, as a father corrects his son, in whom he delights. If you delight in your son, you don't let them go the wrong way. You reprove them, you correct them. And correction is painful. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 5 and following. Here it makes it real clear that we don't like it, but we need it. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 5, says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are proved by him for those whom the Lord loves he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you endure God deals with you as with sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline 
If you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father's spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. So are your hands ever weak? Are your knees ever feeble? Do you need to be strengthened? Do you need to be corrected? Do you need to be instructed? God says, well, then let me send you a trial. Let me, let me, uh, let me spank you a little bit. You won't like it. All such discipline, he says, is sorrowful. It's not joyful. No one ever comes to say, hey, I like that. Give me more of that. If you do, you're being sarcastic, and it's just foolish. He says, that doesn't happen. Nevertheless, even in the pain, something good has happened. I want you to share, God said there in Hebrews, I want you to share in my holiness. And I can push sin out through trials, through affliction. I can correct you, and you get it, and you're better for it. Every father that loves his child knows that, God says, and does the same, would do the same thing. Number three, God also gives us trials for restraining sin, not just correcting it, but sometimes he knows we have this tendency to sin and it needs to be corrected. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. Here's the Apostle Paul, great preacher, man of holiness, <coughs> but he was also a man that had the tendency to be big-headed. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting or exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, in case you didn't miss it, he says it again, to keep me from exalting myself. What does this tell us about Paul? It tells us Paul had a proclivity to taking out his smartphone and taking selfies. And then he would post them on the internet thinking the world's going to be a better place when they see more of me. Imagine that. Paul says, my tendency was just to put myself out there all the time to exalt myself. And I just knew the world would love it. And God says, no, they won't. Let's put a lid on that. Tell you what, let me put a thorn in your flesh. Some people think God put it in his eye that made him look just totally unimpressive. Some, something, blindness or disease in his eyes that says, I'm not impressive when you see me. People don't like looking at me anymore because he liked that selfie shot. And God dealt with him on that. He says, you have this tendency to want to so exalt yourself, I need to work on that. And he gives him a thorn in the flesh. Do we need thorns in the flesh? God says, if you do, I'm going to bring them. Those of you who are too long on the internet maybe need to think through. Maybe your lust for self is something that needs to be dialed back. Because God wants us to learn to deny ourselves so that we will exalt Him. He will correct us through thorns and trials. Number five, uh, oh, excuse me, number four, skip one. As a consequence to sin. So He has to correct us, He has to restrain us. Sometimes He's got to reprove us as a consequence of sin. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 through 30, and you know this because we, we have communion every week, and this is the communion passage. And he says, he says, now some people eat and drink, eating, talking about the bread and the wine. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, sick, and dead, asleep. He says, there have been some of you that have been 
playing with sin. He says, this, the Lord's Supper is to remind us of Christ's sacrifice for sin. And if you mix the sacrifice of sin with your playing with sin, that's just so disrespectful. God says, I'm not going to tolerate that. Don't play with God. God says, the people who are doing that, who take, it's voluntary, you don't have to take. You, you, you say, oh, I'm going to take it. Don't want, I'm going to look cool or whatever. But you're playing with sin. He says, that's so disrespectful. When you should be coming and say, Lord, thank you for forgiving me of sin. I want to be done with sin. Thank you for taking that for me. If you're doing that, you're taking it rightly. But if you're, if you're just holding on to sin and you, you, you think this is no big deal to God, sending his son to die for your sins. God says, well, let me make you weak. Let me give you sickness. Let's see if I get your attention. And if I get your attention, then maybe we can, we, we can grow you in holiness. So as a consequence to playing with sin, sometimes God gives us trials. Not all trials are the result of sin, but some are. And so we have to evaluate, and we have the privilege as a church to evaluate every week, so we grow every week um, in holiness, uh, seeking to be done with sin as we come before the Lord. Number five, for growth and maturity and perseverance. Look at James chapter 1, 2 through 4. James 1. 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. You remember that, right? You're supposed to be joyful in trial. Why? Because somebody didn't mess up your life. God has divinely designed something for you. So consider it joy. If God's at work, he's doing something, this is a good thing. It's painful, but it's good. Verse 3, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let the endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There are times when God wants to grow us, and he puts us under the pressure of trials. I used to ask my mom, because she had this big pot that you had to lock the top on, and it was called a pressure cooker. I said, why do you use that pot as opposed to something else? She says, pressure gets results. I never forgot that. So yeah, it makes that roast tender. And God sometimes puts pressure on us because it gets us more tender and usable for him uh, in molding us into the image of Christ. He grows us and puts us through trials sometimes just for that purpose. Number six, to test and to prove faithfulness. This is one of the primary reasons for trials in the book of Job. Look at 1 Peter, though. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7. It says, this is, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith so you're going through trials, you're distressed by the trials, but the trials are doing what? Verse 7, proving your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can tell a genuine Christian from a non-genuine Christian by watching them go through trials. And God said, I'm going to give you trials to prove your faith. He was doing that with Job, saying, Satan, you look at Job. Job says, let me give him some trials. God says, you can give him trials. He'll still praise me. And so they tested his faith, and he did end up still praising. You've seen people just like Job's wife say, this is too much. Curse God and die. And you've seen people go through the trials cursing God and dying. It proves genuine faith if if we've got it right we come through the trial and we say god thank you for that i obviously needed that i didn't like that but i needed that and to you be all glory and praise it's 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 hard growing to that place of maturity i've got a lot of white oak trees in my yard and they produce these little white acorns and uh, I have to rake up every year, I mean, barrels and barrels full of these acorns. Well, it's nothing for me to be out there 
doing this when one just bops me right in the head. And you know what I do? I go, ow! And then I say, thank you, God. I guess I needed that. No, I probably need a lot more. No, no, that's good. I got it. You know, God gives us stuff. Sometimes he hits us in the head and says, wake up here and praise me. I want to know that I'm yours, you're mine, regardless, no matter what, no matter how painful. God sometimes tests us, and he uses that in these other ways as well. Verse number 7, to equip us for ministry. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Very important. 2 Corinthians 1. Love this passage. 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Man, what a title. The Father of mercies. God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions. So he, also, he afflicts, he's also the God who comforts. So that we will be able to comfort, don't miss that, that's the purpose clause, so that we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also comfort is abundant through Christ. Many times, God takes us through trials to take us all the way through to the place of abundant comfort. And then he says, now that you have received comfort, I want you to take that experience and all of that comfort, and I want you to go right over there to that person who's going through the same thing, and I want you to dump it on them. I want you to give it to them. I want you to use your comfort to comfort those who are going through similar things. When we experienced the third-degree burns, we got a phone call from a burn ministry in Greenville saying, my child was burned like your child. I know what you're going through. Uh, I want to be here for you. We've got all these resources. We've developed a burn ministry for only for burn victims. This is our ministry. We want to give it to you. God had raised up someone who had gone through that. As we were in the ER in Anderson, uh, doctors and nurses came down. We had one nurse that came down. She says, my uh, son was on, you know, one of like these vents. The old houses, some of the new ones still have it, I guess. The furnace in the floor, the big grill, three by three kind of vent. It says my child was on that vent, gas vent, and it blew up. Just like your son. She, I got pictures, and she pulled out the pictures. It says, see the burns just like your son's. I said, well, where did that take you? She said, Seven surgeries, that's where they got it. I, they asked me, what is he looking at? She says, here's the seven surgeries. She had pictures, how the wound matured and how the surgeries helped and those kind of things. She says, this is where you're headed. She, she was there to comfort, using her afflictions, her comfort. She wasn't there to scare us, but there to put her arm around us and say, I'll walk through this with you if you need us to. It's one of the reasons why we here at New Covenant, we don't let the pastor or pastors or staff or elders or deacons do all the visitation for those who are suffering. Why? Because we haven't gone through it all. But you have. And if you want to sign up for our mercy team, you've gone through an affliction to the place of abundant comfort, then we want you on that team because we want you to go to the people who are with that affliction and give them that comfort. It's the comfort of God. And it's far better to be in a hospital room and get not just a pastor visit, but to get five church members or ministers of God saying, yep, I went through this and this and this and this. And this is what God showed me, and this is what he taught me. And you have such empathy and, and love and prayers and resources for those people. And as a church, we're richly blessed because we have a lot of people doing that kind of thing. It excites me. It's, you know, I, I said, you know, trying to build a ministry where it's a privilege to get sick. Because God's going to bless through it. We've got a number of people with numbers of resources uh, that um, is a blessing. So think through, is God taking you through this just to equip you for ministry? 
Many times he does that. Many ministries have been developed through the trials. I mean, how many cancer clinics or uh, hospitals or centers have been developed or fundraisers have been created because somebody went through the trial and says, that's going to be my ministry. I've now been equipped to do that and to pour out the abundance of God's comfort. All right, number uh, eight, to teach us to live by God's word. Look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. You know this verse, but it's usually given to you through the Gospels. Here's where it comes from. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. It's the verse about man doesn't live by bread alone. But notice the context here. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He humbled you and he let you be hungry. God is the one humbling. God is the one who's starving you. He humbled you, and he let you be hungry, and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God says, sometimes I will make you hungry, because I want to teach you to hunger for me. I want you to plead, why, God, why? And then I want you to start reading because I want you to see the answers are in the Word of God. I give you the trial to get you into the Word so that you get a ministry from me so that you start living by the Word of God. It's like the shepherd that used to break the legs of a sheep that's wandering off so that he would now have to carry that sheep until that leg was well. He says, by carrying you, now I'm talking to you. Now you get instruction. It wasn't until I broke your leg that you finally get that message. Sometimes God has to break our legs. He says, I'm willing to do that. Because the word of God is your life. And maybe you need some time in the bed or in the recliner to read the word of God. And God will send you there if that is your need. Number nine, to direct us to seek after God. Luke 15, verse 18. Luke 15 is the story of the, the prodigal son. Uh, famous passage. Let me just read this part of it. He says, verse 18, I will get up and I will go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. That's kind of the conclusion of his trial. He says, man, this is miserable. Why am I continuing to experience this trial and he finally realizes i need to go to god i need to go back to my father i need to go back to where it was good and god sometimes directs us he gets us down so we'll start looking up he wants us to see him and there's times we get all focused and we're not looking towards god and god will send us what we call an accident to direct us right back to where we need to be um, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Number 10, to conform us to Christ. Look at Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Here's a passage that talks about fellowshipping in the sufferings of Christ. Philippians 3, verse 8 says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, in whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, think about all that God wants us to have there. Paul says, I, I want to I know him. I want the power of his resurrection. I want the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. In order to be like Christ, to feel like Christ, to love like Christ, to think like Christ, many times we have to suffer like Christ. And Paul says, it's through this suffering that I'm finally really getting it and con being conformed to Christ. It wasn't until I suffered with Christ, that I begin to think like him and feel like him and love like him. So there are many times God's purpose in our, has 
our, our trials is just to conform us. We're becoming more like Christ through it, and that's a good thing. Number 11, to more clearly display the works of God. Look at John chapter 9. Here's one of those passages that talks about the trial has nothing to do with sin. Not all trials have to do with sin. This is one clear one. John 9, verse 1 through 3. <coughs> he passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither. Not this man, this man sinned nor his parents. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes God afflicts us from birth with afflictions. Maybe blindness in this case. Maybe something else. We see all sorts of special needs kids. We see all sorts of afflictions from uh, paralysis to polio. I mean, we don't see that much anymore, but other things like that. And why? God says, I want to display my works. I want to do something through that person that I couldn't do if they didn't have that affliction. We think of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, paralyzed from, you know, the chest down. Uh, but she's, she's wonderfully known because she paints with a brush in her mouth. And then she started a ministry, and then she wrote books, and then she went on and on and on to be, do so many things, we would have never noticed her without the affliction. God never said it was because of sin that he gave her that paralysis and put her in a wheelchair the rest of her life. But it's to display his works. He's displayed many glorious works through her um, because of her afflictions. We would have missed it otherwise. There are people who are who are afflicted, and we marvel because of what they're able to do with the affliction. Man, they can do that? I, I, I've got all of my faculties, and I can't do that. It just blows us away. It displays the works of God. Number 12, to exalt God's sovereignty and cultivate His worship. And here's the popular verse, Romans 8, 28. And I intentionally left it for last. Not because you would have known it, because I think that's where it needs to be. I think many times we need to soak in our trials. We need to dwell in our pain before we just immediately apply Romans 8.28. 8.28 sometimes feels like a hammer more than a warm blanket until we've asked the question, God, why, why, why? And you've kind of reviewed the other 11 reasons. And then after you've reviewed the other 11 reasons, say, well, maybe this is why, maybe this is why, and maybe this is why I'm going through this. And then you get to Romans 8, 28 that says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, we know this is not an accident. We call them accidents, but what we mean by that is that suffering caught us by surprise. It startled us. It was unexpected. But it wasn't out from under God's control. It's not an accident in that sense. God did not move off the throne. God did not turn his head and admit, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I missed that. You know, that didn't happen. God is constantly working all things together for good. That's why nobody can mess up my life. No event can mess up our lives. Because God is shaping every event, every person, for those who love Him. We are the privileged ones. Everything in our lives works together for good. Not for mess, for good. And we rejoice in that. We praise God. It leads us to worship. We say, man, I did not see that coming. I would have not gone down that road. But now, wow, look what God has done. It's good. And we praise Him. All of these things somehow came together, and they worked together for good. And not only do they work together for good here, but they're going to work together for good in heaven. Many of the things we're doing now is preparing us for that. 
And we're going to be blown away over and over in this principle that God has designed what he's designed for us to create something good that exalts his sovereignty, that impresses us and blows us away into this place of worship, that we praise him for what he has done. Um, you know, I, I don't think we've reached maturity in our trial, and sometimes it may take 40, 50 years. I'm not saying this is short. But sometimes we have to go through a trial a long time. We have to keep reading the Bible. We have to keep praying. We have to keep seeking help. And I think we've reached the place God wants us when we can say, God, if I were to live my life over again, I'd do it just like that. And how can you get there? How can you say, God, if I could live my life over again, I would have lit that stove knowing all that gas is down there. Because God says, because I'm going to work it all together for good. You say, wow. So the trial really was for good. It wasn't just something that messed up our lives, but it was God at work. Uh, God may not need us to answer everything quickly. God may not want us to answer everything quickly. God may not give us answers quickly. But the bottom line is, yes, it will work together for good. How do we respond to God in fiery trials? I'll give you four things just quickly to think through. First of all, recognize God is in control. That's, our world misses that. I'll give you a quick verse. Don't miss this one. This is important. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, if you've got an old school Bible like me and you've got to look it up. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 14 says, in, that, in the day of prosperity, be happy. That's easy, right? Why do you even have to tell us that? Now, because of the next. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. In the day of prosperity, yeah, praise God, be happy. In the day of calamity, praise God and be happy. Whoa, 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 what? No, in the day of adversity, consider God made this too. God didn't just make the good times. God made the bad times. He's sovereign. He's in charge. He's in control. When we were in the ER, somebody, you know, as we were telling the story and getting bandages and treatment and painkillers and all of that, somebody said right after I talked about, you know, I went back to put out the fire on the leaves, somebody said, well, who put out the camper? Because the camper blew up. And I said, I don't know, I didn't think about it. The camper wasn't worth much. You know, that wasn't my focus. And as I was responding that way, I said, I don't know. Andy laying on the bed, all drugged up, lips starting to swell. He said, Jesus put out that fire. And I, to this day, I wonder if he saw angels. You know, I, I don't know what he saw. But that was our answer. And then I said, but wait a minute. It's one thing to get to the place where you see Jesus put out the fire. And I didn't say this in the ER. I said it to myself year, years later. Who started the fire? Ecclesiastes says, God did both. God not only, consider, have you considered that God not only put out the fire, and you can praise him for that, but that God also started the fire. And you need to praise him for that. That's what I mean by recognize God is in charge. He is in control. And when you recognize that, you start there. Then you, you, you're at the right place to start asking questions of the person who has the answers. God. So recognize he's in control, then that'll lead you to number two. Then recognize he's smart. God has the answers. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is profitable. You're going to get something out of it. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God can be thoroughly furnished for every good deed. God wants to equip you and furnish you for everything. He says, get into the Word. He's in control. He's smart. He can give you the answers, and that's where we need to go, and that's going to help us through the trials. I've given you 12 reasons why He may take you through the fire. Number three, then recognize God loves you. All things are in His hands. He's not doing bad things to His people. He's doing good things. They seem sorrowful at the moment, but they're going to end up being good and wonderful. God loves us. He has not forgotten us. Um, one of Johnny Erickson's Tata's main uh, points, God never forgot me. God never abandoned me. Think of some of the great um, things we have in life because of trials. God loves us and takes us through things. Uh, talking about uh, schoolwork, um, uh, what's the guy, Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost. He didn't write Paradise Lost, famous literature, until he was blind, until there was affliction. Or Handel's Messiah, that came to Handel after he was paralyzed by God. Or Pilgrim's Progress, after the preacher was put in prison, Pilgrim's Progress was written. Or, I mean, just go, Chuck Colson, Prison Fellowship. It's not because, not until he was afflicted, thrown in jail, that this huge ministry takes place to people that need it greatly. And it just goes on and on and on of the hospitals that have been built and the ministries that have started because we have a God who loves us and he's afflicted us so that he could comfort us and get us equipped for those ministries. Well, then number four, pray. Pray submissively. Uh, you need, we need to come to God and say, God, you are in charge. I don't quite get it yet. I'm going to review 12 reasons. There's got to be some reason why all this pain is happening to me. I know I'm messed up. I know it could all be about sin, but it might not be. There might be other things you want to do. And we pray in a very submissive way. It reminded me of the story uh, of uh, Dawson Trotman. He was the founder of Navigator Ministry very evangelical conservative ministry he was at a church function they were swimming in a lake and he drowned the church folks witnessed him going under and couldn't rescue him his wife wasn't there yet so lila that's her name she's coming to the picnic or whatever it was and as she's coming onto the scene one of her good friends is running towards her and saying lila lila dawson's gone dawson's gone and as she looks up and sees the commotion and figures out what is meant by all that, that her husband just drowned. Great, godly man. First words out of her mouth. Psalm, 15, verse, Psalm 115, verse 3. God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And when I read that testimony, I said, I would have not thought about the pleasure of God at such a painful time. But she got it. She, 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 submit, she was a woman who was submissive to God. My God is in the heavens. And he does what he pleases. I'll submit to that. I'll live with that. Might not like it for a long time. But I'll live there. That I have a God who loves me, cares for me, he's got answers for me, and he is in control. Um, you know, it's, here's my 13th reason, I, I promised you one more. Uh, it's, it's like Stephen who was stoned in the book of Acts, Acts 7. You know, I don't think Stephen went to heaven and the first words out of his mouth is, God, why the rock to the head, dude? You know, oh, man. I don't think that's what he's saying. As he gets into heaven. Because why? Because God, Jesus has promised, I'm preparing a place for you. John 14, 
Have you ever gone to a hotel and they didn't have your room ready? So what do you mean it's not ready? It's 4 o'clock. I mean, it should be ready. I'm sorry, sir, it's not ready. Okay. What do you want me to do? Well, you can sit in the lobby. You can go sit down by the pool. You can mall's right down there. You can go hang out down there. It's just not ready. And no matter how nice the pool is or the lobby or the mall or whatever, you want to check in. So finally they text you and you get to check in. When God finally says, stone him, throw a rock at him. Why? Because the mansion is ready. I'm ready for him to check in. We're not going to go to heaven and say, why the rock? We're going to say, wow, cool, I've been waiting for this. I get to check in. Sometimes we have afflictions because the room is ready. And we need to realize that's a good thing when the room's ready. I am ready to check in. I'll tell you all I've told my family, don't take my ticket from me when I get the ticket to check in. I'm ready. Don't hold me back. Throw another rock. You know, whatever it takes. That's glorious reason we have a place that's more glorious than this being prepared for us. And I'm excited about that. Pray submissively. You can get excited about it too. Well, I've got to wrap this up, don't I? Second night in the hospital. Andy's head had swollen. Ears had swollen. His fingers were now being wrapped. You couldn't wrap them individually as they were swollen together. And eyes were swollen shut. We didn't know if he was blind, that the, 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 gas, the fire might have um, put out his eyesight. So we wouldn't know whether he could see or not for until that wound went down. Under an oxygen tent in, in the bed, we called our elders of this church and said, according to James 5, we're suffering. We'd like for the elders to come and pray. So the elders of the church met us there at the hospital at 9 o'clock that second night. And the best they could, they could touch his toes, laid hands on his toes, and pray for him. And then they left. And so we didn't know the results of those prayers immediately. But after they left, it was our normal family routine. We asked Gandy, said, uh, we want to pray with you too now. And then we'd like to sing a song. That's what we normally do at bedtime. And so I said, we're, we're, we'll mom and dad will pray, and we're going to let you pick the song. You, you pick a song after we pray. So we prayed, and then we asked Andy, um, you know, through the oxygen, uh, what, what do you want us to sing? He says, I want you to sing, best he could say that, I, I, I want you to sing Victory in Jesus. And again, I was struck. I wouldn't have thought of that. I'm thinking of death and darkness. And I'm confessing my sin before my elders. You know, what have I done? What, why are we here? And somehow God speaks through a three-year-old to say, switch your focus and think about victory. And think about victory in Christ. The words are, I heard an old story, how the Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary, to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning and his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won the victory. I heard about his healing and his cleansing power revealing. How he made the lame to walk and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me, he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew it. Now all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing blood. Ten days later, we walked out of that hospital, now never needing to go back, never needing the surgery, 
All the swelling went down. All the skin was healed.